Welcome back to the Cowboy Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Sharp, joined by co-host Chad Waldron. Hey, Justin. Good to be here again. I'm looking forward to another stellar interview. And today's special guest from the Forge and Range Research Lab at Utah State University. I got the university right this time. That's right. Very good. <laughs> it's not the University of Utah. It's not the Utes. It's the Aggies. Yep. And uh, USDA Research Geneticist, Dr. Blair Waldron. Hello. Happy to be here today. So first order of business, it's Civil War week here in Oregon. That means that the Ducks and the Beavers are going to play each other in football this week. Hallways here at school, I'm not at school right now, but the hallways at school are filled with orange and black and green and yellow posters and tents. And uh, everybody is supposed to be wearing their football gear. They're not supposed to be, but they should be. So if you're at school, next, I guess either Wednesday or Thursday, put on your Ducks and Beaver gear and go support your team. Mr. Waldron, you're an avid Beavers fan, right? Yes, I am. I'm wearing black and orange today. Yeah. Blair, what are you who are you a fan of, even though I guess you haven't lived in Oregon? Which one is Corvallis? Beavers. That's who I'm a fan of. <laughs> <laughs> There's a USDA USDA facility there, so I'll choose them. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, let's get into our interview with Blair Waldron. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh well, um, as mentioned, I'm Blair Waldron. I'm uh, Mr. Waldron's oldest brother. I'm the oldest of eight children um, from Weston, Idaho. Um, I've been moved around quite a bit, but now I live back in Weston, Idaho for the last 15 years on part of the old dairy farm. My wife is Lisa. We have three children, um, uh, both Lisa and I and two of my children are true blue or true blue. We're going to talk about them in our, our Aggies. Our blood bleeds blue. And my youngest is currently an animal science major at USU. So we'll all graduate from USU. Um, have a little hobby farm now, but mostly um, I work for the USDA and uh, as a plant geneticist and, and enjoy that work. And I know we're going to talk some more about that in a few minutes. Yeah, so that's my. You interviewed my brother Kirk last week or sometime, and I'll just warn you, I'm not going to talk as much as he did. Yeah, <laughs> he was a talker. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, he had some. He good made answers. a 25 minute interview go 45 minutes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not that way. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he made life uh, growing up on a dairy farm in the 80s sound, I would say, not very appealing. Was he right or was he a little exaggerative? We have to remember Kirk never liked animals and he would get so frustrated with calves when he's feeding them that he'd hit them in the head and he killed two of them <laughs> by doing that. <laughs> so I listened to his podcast and thought, yeah, Kirk, you're not the best one to say, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, on the other hand, always wanted to be a dairy farmer growing up. So I thought it was a really good life. Um, we learned the value of work. We learned, um, I learned to do it right the first time because I knew I'd get in trouble if I didn't. And I, I learned about teamwork. That's where I first started learning about teamwork. I was the oldest and, uh, and the leader. And I, I, I lead a lot of research teams now. And I always go back to my experiences as a big brother about leading teams. I found out what did work and what doesn't and work. It doesn't work when you beat them up and try to make them motivated to go to work. And so you have to try to find other ways. Yeah. So it was also, oh, go for it. It was also during the 80s, though, was during a, a big ag um, economic recession. And so it was we were poor. 
and it was tough. Um, but it was still, I thought it was a good life. We grew up, we, we worked hard and we were as far as there was four of us that are pretty close. And basically we were each other's social life and our entire, we were everything to each other. We played, we worked and we fought together. I should say as brothers do. So we had a lot of fights. <laughs> I was the oldest, so they never really bothered me. I always won. So yeah, yeah. I was the youngest <laughs> of the four, so I was always on the bottom of that totem pole, Justin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Blair, I, I I asked Kirk if he still has nightmares about forgetting to take the uh, milk line out of the tank and and putting in uh, soap and acid and ruining thousands of gallons of milk. Do you have that nightmare, or is it just me? No, I I have some of that, but not as much. My bigger nightmare is like running off the end of the manure, scraping every end of the pit because oh, I can't yeah. get the tractor stopped. I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I've woke up and thinking I just ran into the manure pit and I'm drowning. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I I I I have that nightmare all the time, and then I I'm still always cold because that's what I remember from the dairy farmers i was always cold every morning every night i was wet from milking cows and out feeding calves in the snow and just always cold my hands were always cold hands were always cold we were pretty poor we didn't have nice equipment back then did we grocery yeah. sack inside of a boot so yeah that keep your feet dry <laughs> yeah that's what yeah. kirk was saying <laughs> but yeah it was now, my, my bigger nightmare has always been when I hear somebody walking heavy upstairs. I think, oh, no, I fell asleep. Dad's coming to get me. I got to get outside. So Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you're a researcher, and Kirk is a nuclear engineer. So, And Mr. Walzer, I guess you're kind of into science, too, since you're an ag teacher and you teach uh, animal science and things like that. So are all you guys fairly interested in scientists or science and stuff like that? Well, I'll, I'll answer, and then I want Blair to answer a bit. I like ag, and I like science, so I just combine the two, and that's kind of where I how I ended up where I was at. Yeah, I think that's a good answer, and I liked ag, and I like science, and I'll talk some more about how I got here as we get down there. But um, um, and Kirk didn't like ag, but he liked science, and I don't know. So he became the nerdy physicist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And our other brother teaches school, and one's in, in the military. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of – we're not all in ag. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You guys were all in FFA, though, right? Uh, yeah. Two two mandatory things if you're a welder, and you were in FFA and you wrestled. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> – so how yeah. how was your experience in FFA then? Were you more into the leadership stuff or more into the you know hands on soil judging, meat judging, things like that? So I I had four years of ag classes. I was in FFA all four years. Um, my senior year I had two hours of ag class. I always joke with my kids. My senior year I had two hours of ag class, one hour of PE, and one hour of weightlifting, and that's how I got to be valedictorian of the twenty students. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't take what did Kirk say? He took physics. Physics, yeah. Instead of ag class, oh my gosh! Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah what a nerd. <laughs> but but I I and I, and I was an officer. I was always an officer. Um, chapter president my senior year. District sentinel my senior year and so i i was no 
Mr. Summers, great teacher. He was fairly new and just getting the program going when I started, but um, we still went to some contests and, and I was fair, I was really shy. So I didn't do a lot of the public speaking and stuff, but I did judging and stuff. Yeah. This has proved a pretty hard question for everybody that we've asked of so far, but do you have one memory that stands out in the four years that you're in FFA? Yeah, I've been thinking about that and I was trying to think, well, was it the sweetheart contest? Because I got to be next to the girls, but uh, we, we I, don't do that contest anymore. You don't, okay? No, yeah, that's, that's that? like sexist. We're not allowed to do that. <laughs> well, we used to do that where you had a girl's town nails, and I can't remember all the things. But really, but, go ahead now. Yeah, well, the girls yeah. would do competitions to uh, to see who was the FFA sweetheart. Yeah, they had a rope pound nails. I think they had to wrestle a pig or something. I can't remember. All kinds of weird stuff out in the gym. It's assembly. Yeah, yeah I don't think we'd get away F- with that now. No, <laughs> no. And if you're an FFA officer, you got to be down there helping with it. It was kind of fun. But my, but my top experience, my number one experience, has to be going to Moscow, Idaho, on the state, on a state judging trip, and um, going up there with my friends, getting away from the dairy for a few days. But uh, going up there and experience, I'd never experienced anything like that. And, getting to go up and and then being able to be on the judging team the dairy judging team and the livestock judging team and i heard mr waldron say something about poultry judging team we didn't even know what a chicken was but mr summers (laughs) threw us on the poultry judging team when we go up there (laughs) yeah yeah i placed 82nd out of 89 contestants (laughs) in the chicken judging contest when i went Uh, (laughs) but that was a fun trip and just going up there and seeing other ffa people and and enjoying that. Yeah. And then you said you went to Utah state, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, what, well, what did you major in? I guess first is what I should ask. Ask. Do you want all of my educational background or just, yeah, sure. Go for it. Okay. So I went, there's a lot of them. (laughs) I went to USU and, and I got a, a bachelor's degree in uh, plant science. I actually started in dairy science, um, and then I changed to plant science. Um, then I got a master's degree at Utah State in plant science, and then I have a PhD from the University of Minnesota, Go Gophers, for, in plant genetics. Plant breeding is the specialty, quantitative genetics. How many years did that take you? Well, if you count, I did a year postdoc after that, and that's twelve years. So wow, you must really oh, like college. Twelve then. years. Yeah, I was a little slow. I, it took me five years to get my bachelor's because I changed majors. But uh, yeah. Wow, that is a lot. Uh, and now you, what would your job title, I guess, be now? Like, what do you do every day? So as you introduced me, I, I my job title is as a research geneticist. So translate that that means i'm a plant breeder i develop new varieties new cultivars uh, of crops and specifically i work on forage grasses used to work on some turf grasses too but mostly forage grasses and forage plants okay and how, how did you end up in that job then is that mostly through education yeah so um as i mentioned i started out um, in dairy science right out of high school. I, I, when I was in high school, I was buying heifers and raising heifers. Our dad would give us a calf for pay 
and then we got to raise that heifer and get keep all the calves from that um, heifer and and their heifers as it went on. And so I was developing a small herd and wanted to be in dairy science. And and after a year of in college of going into dairy science, I, I went and served um, a two-year mission for my church and came back and planned to be a dairy farmer. But um, um, I was pretty immature at that time, and I thought I was the boss, and my dad still wanted to be the boss, so we didn't quite get along who was going to be the boss. And so I thought, I better stay in school. Is that okay for me to say like that now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. that's, an, that's very nice. <laughs> okay. Thanks for being politically correct and, and yeah. not hurting people's feelings. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Because I'm the oldest, and anyway, but uh, um, <laughs> so I had worked for the county my uh, senior senior year spraying weeds, and I loved that. I thought, this is fun. I, this is great. Of course, it was cash. We didn't see a lot of cash from working on the dairy, but uh, – so I went during the summer, sprayed weeds, and thought, I want to be a weed scientist, or I want to work with weeds. And so the closest thing was plant science. So I, I went into plant science, and as I was working in plant science, I got a job with the USDA right in the unit I currently work. And um, and they asked me if I wanted to get a master's degree with them, and I said, yeah, that sounds good. And they're a genetics unit, but I did plant genetics on weeds. I actually looked to see how uh, herbicides affect the chromosomes of grasses. And so did some cytology there. And, and then I got done with that. And I originally, when I was doing that, I'm going to go and get a PhD. And, but I got done there and I was a little burned out. And I thought, ah, I'm going to apply for a job and take a little break here. So I applied for some county extension jobs and I couldn't get them. I applied for some seed sale jobs. I didn't get them. So I was unemployed, young family, living with my in-laws, um, and with a master's degree, and uh, had to have a job. So I, I went and worked at, before there was Microsoft Word, it was called Word Perfect for processing, and it was in Provo, Utah. And I went and worked with them on a temporary line, stuffing discs in boxes as they went by on an assembly line. And I made it one week doing that before I <laughs> said, I'm not going to do this. And interesting, everybody on that assembly line had a master's degree. They couldn't find a job right then. And winter of 93 was a bad uh, year for snow. So I said, I'll go shovel snow off roofs. So I got a job with a roofing company shoveling snow off roofs. And But I've always been afraid of heights. And, and that's probably because I think you'll interview my brother, Kevin, and he taught us about... Uh, gravity what happens if you jump off a haystack with a use a swimming pool as a parachute so i knew what happens with, with gravity a uh, spoiler alert it doesn't work very well yeah i can imagine <laughs> match. so one day i'm up there shoveling snow off this four-story house and i start to slide and i'd watched the guy slide off the week before and i but i started to slide and i thought this is it i'm done and I slid, and I slid, I couldn't stop, and I got stopped right on the edge of the roof. I crawled over the ladder, went down, called them, said, I'm, I'm out of here, send me my check. And, and so, <laughs> and, and happened to be a, a few weeks later, I went to a conference to present my master's work, um, and I ran into some people from Minnesota, and they said, hey, we've got a program that combines weed science and plant genetics, you interested in coming? And 
a month and a half later, I was in Minnesota and uh, loving every minute of it and had a great experience there and got my PhD. Yeah. Interesting. I got done with my PhD and then yet I was going to tell you, how do you choose your career? You're going to, every person comes across crossroads and you have to make a decision. And so each, each one of these times I had to make a decision what I was going to do. And I got to the end of my PhD and I was offered a high-paying job to go be an alfalfa breeder with a private company out in Wisconsin. And we froze to death in Minnesota. And, we, and so we weren't sure we wanted to stay in Minnesota, Wisconsin area. And we missed the mountains. And I was also, also offered a low-paying job, a temporary job, to go do a postdoc in, uh, in Washington, in, at Washington State, in Pullman. And, and so... We decided to take that, so I went and worked on scab resistance in wheat there for a year, and and actually but making that choice helped me get the jo- current job I have, and and so decisions have to be made, but that's how I ended up being a, a forage geneticist in in Logan, Utah. And it sounds like that job that you have now is taking you some pretty inter- interesting places, from what Mr. Waldron's told me and what he has here on the outline. So you went to Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah. Um, Soon, a year after I started working for uh, um, USDA in 1999, um, when I got there, my boss said, we'd like you to start looking, working at a, on a plant called 4-H kosha. And being a weed guy, I thought, no way, I'm not going to work on kosha. But 4-H kosha is a, is a small um, perennial shrub. It's re- distantly related to annual kosha tumbleweed, but uh, um, it's a forage. And so I started working on it and I realized that we needed some new germplasm. So I went to Kazakhstan in 1999 and then went to Uzbekistan in 2002, collecting seeds of, of germplasm. I was looking for a bigger, stockier, larger statured plant. So how much of, time of, did... four, of kosher, is that what you're of talking four, about? Four H kosher. Yeah. Well, can you explain what you're even talking about? Because we don't have kosher in this part of the world. At least I don't think so. I what is it? Do. Do you, well, I don't see it like I did back growing up. I know. Maybe not quite there in, in Christmas Valley, right? Right. But it's close to there. Okay. Maybe not quite. I need to remember my name, my contacts. But so 4 H Kosha, are you familiar with Rabbit Brush? Would that be a familiar? Yeah, we have yes. that everywhere. Okay. So 4 H Kosha is a lot like Rabbit Brush. It's, so it's a shorter, smaller shrub with a really herbaceous top, you know, kind of a, um, a wiry top, but it's got a perennial root. And um, in Uzbekistan, 4 H Kosha is called the alfalfa of the desert, the lucerne of the desert. So it's the alfalfa of the desert, meaning that so it has really high feed value. But an annual kosher actually has some decent feed value too. It's just got a toxin in it. Um, but forage kosher, so it's this perennial plant that uh, stays green late in the summer and into the early fall. Um, and so it can provide protein for animals and livestock when there's not a lot of protein out on the range. A lot of the plants have gone dormant. The protein levels go way down. A ruminant animal needs 7% protein to keep the, that rumen active, keep the bacteria in the rumen active. And so it helps keep those animals healthy. And so 4-H kosher is this little plant, short plant, 
that can be used for grazing in the fall and winter. And my goal was, was to make it a little taller because I'd start doing research on it and it'd get covered by snow and my research would get ruined. So I started developing new varieties of forage kosher. And we released one and, and not surprisingly, the name of that variety or cultivar is snowstorm because it's, we were trying to beat, develop something that could survive a snowstorm and the cattle could still eat it. How much? When I was when I was driving or when my, I was raising my kids and we would drive around and we'd see a hungry cow, I'd say, what does that cow wish I had? And they knew to shout out 4-H kosher. <laughs> so. and, and so we have, you, we have it out in this area. I mean, I mean, I know, okay. Well, the question is going to come up here in a minute, like what you're doing, what are you doing out in Burns? But I just, I just, I, I guess I've never seen it here, but maybe I just got to go hundred miles east. Maybe. What county are you in? Lake. Lake. What's the county directly to the east? Harney. Harney. I know it's in Harney County. Okay. I don't know about Lake County, but I know it's in Harney County. I went on a tour there. It's been some years ago, and I didn't really know where I was at all the time. I just followed around, followed along, and I thought, I thought, man, I think I'm getting kind of close to where um, your county was at. So. Yeah, you were within two hours, I believe. Actually, I've, I've got a phone call, a message. I've got a call right now from somebody in Christmas Valley who wanted <laughs> to know how to clean seeds. Speaking of that, and I and somebody's emailed me from Christmas Valley about four inch kosher. Huh. Okay. So you're I'll gonna... send you the I'll send you the name now. I'll look at okay. our chat. Sorry, I call him that, Mister Waldron. Yes. So I'll send you a name sometime. Okay. So you're going to shake my head at the way I'm about to say this, but you went to Kazakhstan and you said Uzbekistan, right? Yep. Yeah, so you went there looking for better breeding stock, I guess you could call it, for this forage kosher? Excellent. Excellent way to put it. Yep. Okay. How long Did how, you find it? So in in Kazakhstan, um, we, we brought it back and looked at it, and it didn't prove to be what we were looking for. That's why I went back to Uzbekistan. And we okay. did find some in Uzbekistan, and we released a new colobar that's called Snowstorm. Yeah. Okay. How much time did you spend there then? So in Kazakhstan, I was there for nearly a month. A lot of the time, we were sleeping out on the range in a tent. It was October. It was cold. We were in an old bus. Kazakhstan was a tough experience. That was 1999. The Soviet Union um, dissolved in 1991. And so those countries were really struggling, trying to figure out what they were doing. Very third world, right? Yeah, very third world. Um, our shower, when we finally got to go back to a shower, we we uh, it was just you go into kind of a, a hot house, a steam house, and pour water on your out of a bucket on top of you. We flew into Russia, and then we took a train down to Kazakhstan, and that was quite an experience. That was a forty-eight hour ride on a train, and people were so poor back then um even even by 2002 when i went to uzbekistan things had gotten much better they were starting to get on their feet so yeah so what does agriculture and kind of just i guess you could say the food chain in general look like over there so in kazakhstan at that time and, and during the soviet union era kazakhstan was a big grazing area and they and they had a lot of their big herds grazing there but they had managed grazing um and we went there with the collapse of the Soviet Union, then there was no management. There's no BLM. There's no nobody, no forest service, nobody controlling how many animals go, 
on in the land. So right around the villages, it was so overgrazed and a lot of poisonous plants were coming in. And then as you'd get further and further away from the villages, then there'd be more forages there. And we were collecting forage kosher, so that's where we'd have to go. But there were miles and miles of uh, fence posts, and they made them out of cement. They weren't wood they, or steel. They were cement fence posts all over the place, miles and miles of them, and not one strand of wire on them. They'd all been stripped for their wire. And so and then they were just back to free, nomad-type grazing. First person to get to the forage was able to have their animals eat it. All the good forages were eaten to the ground and going out, and bad plants were coming in. Wow. I, so we're, we're, I think they're doing better now, somewhat better. A lot of the, they have a, the Aral Sea, they call that one of the ecological disasters of our time as it's drying up and, and um, some hard things are happening in those countries, but hopefully they're doing better. Uzbekistan, they grew a lot of cotton and um, in parts of Uzbekistan and melons and stuff, and they seem to be doing better. When we went to Kazakhstan, all these old Soviet Union tractors and combines were just sitting there, no parts, no way to get them running. And I think they started getting things, the supply train going and stuff so they could get things going again. Wow. So while we're talking about forage kosher, apparently this turned out to be a bigger topic than I thought it would. Um, do you want to explain what Skull Valley is in Utah? Mr. Waldron uh, has put stuff in the outline <laughs> about it, and it sounds not great. It's another one of those nightmares I have that working in college. I'll, I'll give you a little background. So Skull Valley, it used to be millions of sheep in Utah. And Skull Valley was a winter grazing land. And, and it's a salt desert shrub range. And so sheep, sheep graze shrubs. And so they'd move their sheep over there, not much snow, and, and, and graze the sheep there. But it was way overgrazed um, over the years. And then we started getting cheatgrass or downy brome coming in, which started a frequent fire cycle. And once the fires would burn through, then it would kill some of the shrub and more cheatgrass would come. And they, and they changed this fire cycle from every like 30 years to every 10 years. And now it's down to every five years. And so basically, if you can go to Skull Valley and you can look, drive as far as you can, and look, the whole thing is 100% cheatgrass, downy brome, annual grass, except for where we've got a few, a little bit of forage kosher growing. And we, and we grow forage kosher also to stop fires and to, uh, and to establish after cheatgrass comes in um, where you can't get anything else growing, especially in a shrub ecosystem where grasses aren't really well adapted anyway. So, Skull Valley's hot, Skull Valley. So if you go to a cheatgrass area, it's about 10 degrees warmer. There's no grasshoppers. There's no really life in it. If you go over to where there's some grass or forage kosher, it's 10 degrees cooler. You're going to get some mice. You get lizards. You get grasshoppers. So when when Mr. Wallen says he was working out there, it's stinking hot. That, that's global warming there because there's no plants to help cool it. So Yeah, Skull Valley doesn't sound like a very enticing name, that's for sure. <laughs> No, no. Yeah, not somewhere so, you want to go to vacation. <laughs> so part of what they do there now is they try to get some plants, some perennial plants established, including forage kosher. Um, not only not only stop fires, but to uh, to um, help with the winter feed costs. Yeah. So winter feed costs. One reason I work on forage kosher is because winter feed costs 
uh, the number one expense in a cattle operation in the western U.S. And, and so if you can extend grazing into the fall and winter, you can save um, a lot of money. And, and if you, we found that if you grew forage kosher, you could save 25% of your feed cost per day per cow. Or, or you can increase the grazing value of that rangeland. And I, I did some, I did some calculations about a year ago. The seed companies now estimate that there's one to two million acres of forage kosher in the western U.S. And there's a lot in burns. I can tell you, there's a lot in burns. I was really surprised by that. But, um, and I've calculated what that's worth. And so, I, the grazing value with that forage kosher has gone up is estimated for a million acres is about $28 million per year in increased grazing value. It saves about $12 million per year in feed costs, feeding alfalfa hay. So this is an economic boom for ranchers um, to have it out there and help them with their feed costs. Wow. So is that, is forest kosher, is that the work you were doing in Burns then? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So is there anything going on in Lake County that you know of with that? But just like I said, I got a call right now, somebody that's growing some seed of it, and I don't know I needed to follow up on that. It's going to be Daniel Miles, doesn't it, Justin? What's that? <laughs> it's going to be Daniel Miles. Oh, yeah, probably. He's always doing something weird like that. <laughs> I'd look at my phone, but then I, I don't want to take a chance of hanging up on you. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a little bit going there. I, I worked over actually in – Crane is crane. Yeah, that's yeah, cranes, cranes by burns. Yep. Cranes by burns, and so I didn't yeah. actually work on the ARS unit. I a, a rancher contacted me, a Wilburn Ranches, and he said I'm really interested in this. I was looking for a place to put out forage kosher in big plots. If you put it in little plots, the jackrabbits would eat it all. So I wanted acre acres, and so he said I got this place. You can put it out. And we ended up putting out these big 20 acre plots of about eight different lines I was working on. I wanted him to graze it and say, "What his cows eat it? His cows ate it fine." And, and that's how that's how it helped me decide which one to release. We released the one that he couldn't keep the elk out of. So that's his only complaint: the elk eat it before the cows get to it. So, so is there a program that ranchers can go through to get forest kosher planted on their land if they can? Um, so, so rancher can. I get a lot of phone calls every year about ranchers planting forage kosher and strategically planting it we try to recommend it for a late summer fall grazing if that's what the land is used for and they can buy seed it doesn't take a lot of seed seed prices vary every year but uh, we talk to them about how to get it established and, and how it can help them save money so they can ranchers contact me or they can go read an article then talk to their county agent then talk to their seed people been a lot of failed plantings because it's a unique plant it's not just like going out and planting weed or barley you gotta know what will make it tick so yeah thinking about getting your dad to plant it justin it's actually not a bad idea for if you it's put it in like the feed idea. grounds here if it'll grow i'm sure it will if it'll grow in burns and crane yeah oh. yeah it's it's great for extending the uh the grazing season over in Burns, I was just shocked at the grazing associations. They planted lots and lots of it and continue to plant it. And they even graze it a little earlier than we normally recommend. They're back there in July and August, but uh, they seem to really love it. Huh. That's actually really interesting. So kind of close out here. We usually finish 
things like this when we're talking with people with interesting careers um, about how high schoolers like me could kind of follow or fall into a path that leads us to a career like yours. So uh, your path seemed pretty long. I mean, you have a lot of education. What do you think the best path to getting to be a, uh, a uh, research geneticist or a place like that in the USDA is? So and that kind of goes along with some of my advice for seniors, right? Is, is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I would, I, I wrote down, I thought I, I wouldn't be afraid to go after your dream job and, and don't be afraid of education. If your dream job means a lot of education, don't be afraid of that. Um, I, I, I piddled around trying to decide what I was going to do, what my major is going to be. If I was going to go to vet school, and I kept getting afraid, oh, I don't want to go to school that long. And in the end, I went to school longer than I ever had planned on it. And and the more you're in school, the, actually, the more you find that you enjoy the job, the area you're going into. The hardest year of school is your freshman year. Second hardest is your sophomore year. And, and it and keeps going like that. And so I would say don't be afraid to go to school. I would say do go to school. I don't care if you go to a trade school, if that's what you want to do, or go to college. Um, in the USDA, if you aren't for USDA, you got to have a bachelor's degree. And maybe you're not planning on, maybe you're going to go work on the farm afterwards. Well, that bachelor's degree will come in awful handy for you when, when you decide, oh, well, I need, I want to take a different job for a while. I have people my age now applying for jobs with USDA. And the first thing I ask them, I say, well, do you have a bachelor's degree? Did you finish school? And the ones that say yes, I say, oh, great, let's get you applied here. So I would say go to school, get that degree, and, and hopefully it's in an area that you like and, and move forward with it. Maybe, it. maybe it'll be your job then. Maybe the crossroads, will, won't, you won't go that way for a while. Maybe it'll be delayed until sometime later. Yeah. yeah. I, I, tell, I tell students that if you're going to run the farm, that's fantastic. You need to leave for a several years, three or four years, and get a degree and come back and do it. It's not going to hurt you. No, and if nothing else, it's a great, uh, a great anchor, uh, a saving line sometime down the road. But either get a degree and go to college, go to trade school. I have a lot of kids go to mechanics and diesel, and I'm like, it's just nothing. It's only going to help you when you come back and take over the farm. Exactly. Yep. Do you have any advice on as someone who did go to school for a really, really long time compared to most people? Do you have any advice mm-hmm. on how to pay for it? so so i would i would go to the military that's what kirk would say yeah yeah (laughs) i did not go to the military (laughs) um i think my advice is to make sure you look at all all of the economic aid that is out there apply for scholarships and and I, i always find kids that don't apply for um um, Pell grants. The government wants the government wants our youth to be educated, and and so there's usually ways to help you. Now school is way expensive right now, um, so get a job while you're there. I know a lot of kids that say no, I'm just gonna go to school, and I'm thinking, well, that's great. I work two jobs through school, so but get a job, um, get some grants, apply for scholarships, try to minimize the student loans. You don't want to get out of school with a ton of student loans. Sometimes you have to have a little bit, but try to minimize them. Study hard in your undergraduate so that you can get a research assistantship when you go into graduate school where they actually pay you, not a lot, but pay you to get a master's degree or a PhD. So, 
All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good answer to wrap up our podcast. Usually this is what we do in the end. So do you have any final words of wisdom for high school seniors or anybody else listening? I just, one thing I would wrap up with and and I I wanted to mention this is um, be proud for those seniors who are working with you. Be proud of being in FFA and your ag classes. I hire a lot of students at uh, Utah State University and to work with me or the team of scientists I work on. And I always scroll down and look and see, well, were they in FFA and were they an officer? What did they do? Did they show livestock at the fair? Were they in the tractor backing contest like I was? Um, FFA is like a fraternity slash sorority, and we take care of our brothers and sisters. And so don't don't forget to put that on your resume because there are some of us who are looking for that as we look to hire students. Well, I think that's really good advice, especially for people listening from our area. So thank you for that. But all right. Well, massive thanks to you. Thank you to Dr. Waldron for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on Cowboy Talk. We really appreciate it. And we would love to have you back on in the future. Great. You've been listening to the Cowboy Talk podcast, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean, along with being shared on the North Lake FFA Facebook page. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it probably for every episode of the podcast going forward. Please share the podcast in any possible way you can, whether that means on Facebook or telling your friends by word of mouth so that we can get new listeners. And also leave us a five-star review wherever possible so people can find us without having it showed to them. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.